I'm big on giving the athlete an experience. Like I want the athlete to have this experience so that they can recall that and know what that feels like. So I understand the logic behind just do high, low and like avoid the middle ground. You know, I understand the logic behind it, but I just think from a player experience standpoint, when you're operating at various zones of intensities across a game and you never know which one you need to be comfortable in, I think it's important to have the experience to recall, like I've been here before. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So we're nearly 18 months since Cam Joss came on for the first part of this episode. We'd actually meant to do the second part quite quickly afterwards, but time has got away from us. COVID happened, or continued to happen, and we never lined it up. So here we are for the long overdue part two. So we have a little chat around what Cam takes from track and field when working with his team sport athletes, or his football athletes, uh, Indiana. We also have a little chat around queuing, long-term progress versus short-term results. Are we over-queuing our athletes and going long periods of, of sessions and putting sessions on in a way that requires very little queuing or even no queuing? Then we have a little chat around programming and profiling. So a super, super interesting episode with Cam, just a little bit longer overdue than expected. So enjoy. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Satanta College. Satanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognised qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit satantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, 
head over to their website, imeasureyou.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Cam. Cam Joss, welcome back to the Pace Performance Podcast. It was supposed to be a quick part two after part one, but a year and a half later, we've, we've finally made it happen. So uh, thank you for joining me. No, I'm so glad to be back. And like we said off air, I think it's it's better that people get longer periods in between doses of seeing me or hearing me. So it's, it worked out for the best, I think. You're a, you're a humble man. I'm sure the listeners would not uh, would not think that. I'm sure they'd, they'd like much more of you. But no, it's, uh, it's appreciating you coming back. Anyone that doesn't know who you are and hasn't listened to part one or anything else you've you've done in the industry, would you mind just giving us a bit of a brief background to you and then we can dive into the, the list of stuff that we've got planned? Sure. Yeah, I'll try to keep it concise. I um, I spent the first seven years of my career in the private sector, so I was working with DeFranco's training systems. Uh, kind of in between New Jersey and Texas, we went down to Texas for two years and, and tried to do some things down there. I ended up moving back to New Jersey and... Um, Basically, you know, I had I had wanted to make the transition to more of a team sports setting because I wanted to uh, work with a greater population of subjects if, or players, if you will. So I decided I wanted to make the transition to team setting, and it didn't matter to me if that was going to be high school, collegiate, or professional. I just wanted to find the right fit for me, and so um, I ended up here at Indiana University with Aaron Wellman. And I got here in April of 2020, right as the pandemic was hitting and had to deal with all of that. The first year here was uh, going through all the COVID, um, all the restrictions and, and putting uh, you know players into different cohorts and all kinds of craziness. So it was an interesting first year to enter the team setting. But um, you know now we're into a little bit more of a normal flow. But I, I've been here at Indiana University, Indiana University uh, for the last two seasons, so since 2020. So, um, and I'm grateful to be here at this point. I know it's a very different setup to what it is here in the UK or anywhere in Europe, really, in terms of the private sector and the 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 team spot environment. But that that private sector experience and the the kind of grounding of 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 that set you up perfectly for the collegiate setting. Is that was that always the thinking? Well. Yes and no. So I will say that the private sector really helped me with the actual training side of things, uh, being able to experiment and monitor athletes very carefully. You know, I had groups of five to 10 at most. Sometimes it was as little as two athletes would come in uh, for one session time. So it allowed me to be really detail oriented in my programming and monitoring of the players and the athletes that were coming in. I had a lot of general population clients as well, as everybody does in the private sector. So um, it gave me a, a great exposure to a, a wide diversity of different uh, clients at that point. And so I think in making the change, what I wanted to do was to improve my skill set of operating in a way that's adaptable and agile when I now have a hundred athletes in the room and not just me, obviously I work as part of a staff. We have a five man staff and then we have some interns that help us out as well. But just when the room's full of, it's a complete zoo of athletes. So how do we manage them? And you know, I work with American football. I, I don't think I've mentioned that before, but American football, we, you know, we might have upwards of 120 players on the team at one time. And so, um, you know, the, the minimum number we'll have in the room at any time is probably 40 athletes, um, you know, if we were to divide them up into different sessions. And so it, it's just really improved my skill set of managing bigger problems across a much larger population set, which is exactly what I wanted to, to do to personally improve my skill set and um, be exposed to that. So I never had that in the private sector, but this is where the last two seasons have been really good to me, um, leaning on. Aaron Wallman's experience as our head strength coach here, and he's been doing it for 25 years in the team setting. So um, learning a a ton from him, just being able to work underneath him. And so uh, definitely very grateful for what I've been able to develop in terms of my skill set in this setting now in conjunction with all of the great things I got from being in the private sector as well. Would you mind if we dived a little bit deeper into managing those large groups? Because I think that's that's a common topic that'll come, that def, definitely does come up in this podcast I'm sure it comes up in conversations all over the place and just taking your examples and bringing them over here to the UK and Europe of obviously my experiences very few people are going to be working with especially in the elite side they can be working with ones and twos and twos and threes that's pretty good more rehab if they're on the field 
there's going to be 20, 25, 30, maybe not the 100 that you guys are dealing with, but definitely the 25s and 30s between one, two, if they're lucky, three coaches, but probably more often not one and two. So what recommendations would you give to coaches dealing with those large groups? Well, what Aaron Wallman does a great job of doing is delegating parts of that larger group to each of us. So we're able to funnel it down to where we really only have to manage personally maybe 20 athletes at one time or 15 athletes or something like that. So um, he does a really good job of using the manpower that we have to break the room up. So, you know, it could be I'm responsible for these position groups and I get them through their workout. And it's, like I said, maybe 15 or 20 of them at, at one time. And so he, the way he communicates it to us is that, you know, if I give you your group, you are now, even though it's, you know, he's writing the program ultimately and we're following what, what we, we come together with as a, as a cohesive staff. Um, but, you know, he has the final stamp of here's the program. But within that, once, you, once we all are on the same page of what we're doing, then with the respective athletes that you have, you are basically now the, their head strength coach for that session. So you have to take command of that group. You have to manage that group. Um, and really make sure that you have ownership in those players. So, and what he does a great job with as well is we don't just, um, and everybody, every place might do it differently, but the way that we do it, and I actually really like this, is that you don't just stay with one position forever. So, you know, I might be working with more of the perimeter players. Uh, you know, we call them skill players or you know, your wide receivers or defensive backs or that play along the perimeter, more speed-oriented positions. Maybe I work with them through the winter session of off-season training for whatever it is, two months or so. But then when we transition over to summer training, maybe now I'm with the linemen. I'm with the people that are more up front on the line. And, um, you know, it's a totally different skill set that they need. And I think one thing that we do a really good job of here at Indiana University is individualizing the training process, not just for the position group, which is already a great step in the right direction, but then within that, the individual modifications for each player in that position group, which it's layers and layers of complexity. Um, but over time, you start to hit a nice groove with it where it's it's doesn't have to be as complex as it might sound at first. But, um, you know, it could be something as simple as this guy's got some kind of contraindication in his lower back, so he probably won't be barbell squatting. So he goes and does something different in place of that. But he's still following the general template of what his position is doing. So we just have... Um, you know, like I said, we lean on his experience, and he, he's had plenty of experience being in the in the collegiate setting, and he also was with the New York Giants in the National Football League. So just um, leaning on his experience and helping us delegate the room a little bit better. So it sounds really, you know, menacing to say there's 100 athletes in the room, but within that, maybe I only have 20 of them personally. So it's not like I have to take 100 athletes at one time. And there are some strength coaches that have to do that, and I commend them, you know, because they have less manpower, and it's, it's incredible they can get a good job done. But... Yeah, that's kind of how we do it here. When it comes to the speed side of things and managing that kind of group, even a even a group of twenty is pretty daunt well daunting for a lot of people to actually understand what is what is needed to you know develop the coaching eye so they're actually putting the time into situations that that need it. How do you do that, and how have you managed that? Like you say, coming from a private sector when you might have two and three even to dealing with twenty in a speed session when you've got fast people moving, moving quick past you um, to understand what's going on and where you need to spend your time. Well, again, we take a similar approach. So when we're, when we're out on the field and doing field sessions, we again, use our manpower to our advantage. So it's basically like chunking, if you will, like, uh, you know, if you, if you absorb information in chunks, it can be a little bit easier to sort of grasp the holistic picture of everything. So it's a similar approach to when we're coaching our speed sessions, we are perhaps responsible for a station. So for me, I, I, I spend a lot of time uh, and effort looking at high-speed running mechanics. Uh, you know, how is the athlete operating in a high-speed environment? Because I, I just got to a point in my career where I was tired of seeing hamstring pulls and things like that. So I've really I've gone down that rabbit hole, you know, as far as I can go, and I'm continuing to dive, and I'm ever-falling, free-falling forever. Um, down that rabbit hole, but that's also going to be something that's part of my PhD research as well. Is is just can we how can we better solve this hamstring problem? And you know we can never probably fully eradicate it. But um, before going off on too much of a tangent and bringing it back, you know my station might be the high speed mechanic station. 
because it sort of suits my skill set and what I'm really interested in. So I, I give that station my all. So when we're rotating players around the field and doing different stations and things, and some are probably devoted to acceleration, some stations are devoted to resistance sprinting, some are devoted to change of direction, maybe another one is for more reactive agility work, some open base drills, but maybe there's one station where I am and it's, it's a high-speed running station, and I have to give that my all. Like, again, it's, it's, I take ownership in that station, so every player that comes through there, and again, it's in chunks, so maybe there's only 10 to 15 at a time, but when they come to me, I need to really focus on, you know, that five to 10 minutes or however long I have them in that station, and, and you know, we do kind of a minimal effective dose approach to it. We're not always doing a ton of volume, a ton of reps, but we're trying to make sure the quality is very high. So again, we use our manpower on the field as well, so, um, when you have your station you're responsible for, you just need to make sure that you are as dialed in as you can be on the qualitative aspects of that station and, and just always finding ways to help your athletes get a little bit closer to uh, where we would like to see them in terms of qualitative output, whether it's something measurable or just something that we're looking at from more of a kinematic standpoint, a form, a technique-oriented uh, aspect of what we're looking at. But, you know, it's, it's certainly significantly more challenging in a team setting to get results fast than it is when I was had five athletes at a time, you know? So it's more of like the statue of David, you kind of have to chip away at it and it's, it's in there somewhere, you just have to chip away at it and make sure you can uh, get a little bit closer to seeing the whole sculpture, you know? Um, and it might take time. And I think that that's something that is important to be transparent about is that it might take time. It might take one athlete two months to get better at some of these things. It might take another one two years. I mean, it just depends on how they learn and, and you know, how we communicate to them. And it's always about how can we do it in the most efficient manner possible. But I think it's important to say that it, it will take time to improve some of these things. So it's not a quick fix for sure. Cool. So you wrote an article for Sportsmith a few months ago, which went down an absolute dream. And the, the, main, the main focus of the article was what team sport athletes, sorry, what team sport coaches and their influence, what influence they should be having taking from track and field. So my question to you now, in summary, what do you take from track and field? And what have you chosen to leave where it is and develop your own thing from a, a team sport perspective? Yeah, so something I've, something I learned from a lot of great mentors that I've had, but one in particular is Fergus Connolly. And, you know, I wrote a book series with him and he and I have talked a lot about how it's dangerous to look at a certain discipline and try to completely uh, replicate or completely copy that discipline instead of absorbing the useful concepts from that discipline. So in terms of track and field, I think what happened is in team sports, we started realizing speed was important. You know, we, we, okay, we can't just lift weights. We need to probably focus a little bit on speed and things like that. Um, but we also can't neglect the weights. You know, it's all part of like the, the holistic picture of things. So, um, I think that when we were then shifting the paradigm towards speed, and this is coming from a speed biased person, obviously, um, we shifted too far that way. And I think it's kind of like the hype cycle, the way it works is something comes out, it becomes very, there's a lot of hype around it. it it's just, it's being blasted everywhere and everybody just dives into that. You know, it's like triphasic training or whatever else it, that you can think of where it comes out and you think it's going to cure cancer and do all different kinds of things. And, um, but then it sort of finds its way back into where it rightfully fits. And I think linear speed and, and more track and field concepts is, is similar in that, in that approach, because I think that what happened was our obsession with speed led us to studying track and field. And we started just as a field started copying track and field programs, which is probably not appropriate for team sport players. Whereas concepts related to how track and field athletes are able to operate at very high speed are very useful, I think. You know, just general principles of what are some of these shapes and positions and force transmission patterns that are associated with acceleration, that are associated with high-speed running. You know, these are things that I think that the argument is still out there of, you know, it doesn't matter, like just have the athletes sprint in their sport and do all that. Like we don't need to help them, you know, get better at their acceleration form or their high-speed running form and all these things. And my personal opinion is that, I just want to err on the side of safety and helping ensure that this player is moving in a way that's biomechanically efficient. And so I just think of it as like, I want to, I want to help protect that athlete as best I can. So 
I know if I can put them in positions that research is being driven towards, like these are positions that are associated with those who are able to achieve high performance with longevity. Like that's what I want to look at is it's not just achieving high performance. It's also not just longevity without performance. It's got to be a mix of the two. You know, how can I get much higher performing athletes and at the same time keep them safe and put them in these safe patterns? So I can accept the fact that an, uh, an American football player is, is not going to sprint as well as a track and field sprinter in terms of their technique or, or their outputs, certainly their outputs. But at the same time, I can still drive them through into some of those similar concepts that are associated with it, like horizontal force application, horizontal force production and acceleration, uh, you know, shin angles and positions and understanding how to keep, you know, a neutral position at the spine and the hips and some of these things of, you know, front side lift when you're at the, uh, in high speed running and all that. And so I think it's important though to help the players understand that these are, these are concepts. They're not very defined positions and, and who you are will dictate the, the position you get into in terms of um, your own movement authenticity. And, and I think it has a lot to do with structure and, uh, you know, the way your body is built and also your, also your abilities at that time. Cause we, we get a lot of players that sure we want to start promoting a little bit more front side lift and things like that. Um, you know, with our players that are getting into the high, these high speed positions, but there's some of them that they don't have the hip flexor strength or endurance to maintain that position. They don't have the core position or core strength to even maintain a neutral pelvic position. Um, they also don't have the foot and ankle strength or power to be able to transmit that force from that much of a, a knee lift. So you have to start working with them towards like, okay, like over time, can we see this get a little bit better um, to where it's in a position where we feel really good about it. And, and it's like anything else, like Charlie Francis used to say, if it, if it looks right, if it looks right, it probably flies right. Right. I mean, so I think we all know intuitively, like that looks really good. He's probably moving pretty well, you know? So um, I, it's my personal opinion that I just think that, from track and field, we can get these these generalized concepts and sort of adopt them, but with the understanding that the the specific context of team sport, um, especially with something like soccer or, or or football, you know, anywhere outside of the U.S., it's <laughs> you got to control a ball with your feet. I mean, it's hard to have good sprint mechanics when you're controlling a ball with your feet, um, but. It, just understanding the constraints of that sport, but still keeping some of these concepts in check. You know, what happens when they're off the ball or, or whatever else. So, um, and how do we marry that with all the reactive elements and everything else? So I just think you have to take a whole approach to it. And I can't just be completely married to sprint mechanics either. I need to understand the context with which those are happening. So that's my personal opinion on the whole matter. Why do you think we are in the hype cycle? The speed obsession hype cycle? I are think we still this... in the trajectory of the hype is building yeah i think so okay yeah yeah i mean i think that we we still don't have it in its rightful place and that was part of why i wanted to write that article for your website is because i wanted to say the vast majority of the american football game is nowhere near top speed you know and uh, yeah we're gonna really focus on acceleration and try to improve output certainly but we still need to what about all the other moderate speeds? What about the low speeds? Like how are our players moving and operating when they're at speeds that are less than maximal or the effort is more submaximal and they're reading things. So I, I, I try to, you know, we need to take a bigger picture of everything. And, and, and I'm big on marrying the qualitative and the quantitative. So something that drives me crazy is, is you get a GPS report of what was done or any other measurement it could be, maybe you got a force plate report of a jump, you know, but I don't have a video of that jump or I don't have a, a video of what went into that GPS report, you know? And so if I don't, if I can't see the work being done, I don't understand everything associated with that work. All I know is what happened. Like I have a, basically like a history book, like <laughs> this is what happened, you know, like I have this historical event, but I wasn't there. I didn't see it. And I don't have any other, all I have is what's written in text. I don't have any sort of like imagery to go with that. So to me, I think it's, it's, there's gotta be this blend of the two. And I think that's where the art meets the science. I think the science is, is the numbers on the paper and all of that. And um, perhaps more of the art is monitoring that and being able to recognize these things and develop your coaching eye and, and um, you know, develop some of these things of, okay, looking at it qualitatively, yeah, the outputs are good, but what are we seeing qualitatively? Is there anything we need, we need to address or um, you know, just what's going into it? And how does that impact what's happening with the player in real time as well? So I think that if we become too obsessed with speed and everything's just constantly maximal sprinting and all of that, and like we're missing this middle ground of 
where the athlete actually operates. And I think it's important to, you know, I love how Altus had those five different speed zones because I'm like, we need to spend some time in some way, shape or form at all of these, <laughs> you know, because they're going to hit all of them. Um, it, like one of the greatest stressors in American football is just standing on your feet, you know, like not even doing anything, but just being on your feet for two to three hours at, at a, in a summer practice after having not done that, you know, just the stress of being, standing there and, and the gravitational load of that for hours on end without any kind of intermission. So um, there's just all these other stressors that I think we need to consider and how that how speed relates with all of those things as well. It's got to be a whole picture approach. But it's that middle ground that's often demonized, even though, like you said, based on the article, that's where the athletes spend the most time. Yeah. And I think I I personally would rather so i'm i'm big on giving the athlete an experience like i want the athlete to have this experience so that they can recall that and know what that feels like so i understand the logic behind just do high low and like avoid the middle ground you know i understand the logic behind it but i just think from a player experience standpoint when you're operating at various zones of intensities across a game and you never know which one you need to be comfortable in I think it's important to have the experience to recall, like I've been here before, you know? And so like a lot of people avoid entering a lactic state or something like that, right? They, they, just, they just avoid it completely. Just do your low work, your aerobic work, your oxidative work and don't get there. Um, and again, I agree, you know, reading Verkashansky's work on the topic, all like just this kind of anti-glycolytic approach, like improve your ability to be oxidative. Great, I agree 100%, be, you know, a great aerobic engine, all of that. But the feeling of entering a lactic state is going to happen at some point, you should probably have at least periodically some experience with that, right? <laughs> at some point in the American football game, especially now because the game is getting more spread out. It's uh, offenses are moving faster. So they're moving in greater spaces and they're snapping the ball more quickly than they ever have before. Some of them are still more of an old school type of mindset, but if you, they get a drive going and they're going and they're going and they're going, if you're playing defense, you're going to start, your legs are going to start to feel heavy. So how do you deal with that? How do you handle that, you know, from a psychological standpoint and a physical standpoint? And if you have not had that experience before, you're going to freak out when you experience that. So I just think of it from the player experience. Um, and the player experience is so big for me because when I was working in the private sector and working with players in the NFL or any other professional league, Hearing what that's like for them to go out there and operate consistently in a professional sporting environment, that gave me a ton of information as to how I want to program going forward. So that's really where I was like, I need to, I need to operate based on the player experience, not some science book or like that. Of course, I need to read those things. I need to be uh, up to date in what, I'm, what I know from a knowledge standpoint. But the art of tying everything in together and knowing what's right for each player as best as I can is, is to me based on the player experience and trying to understand and have almost a sense, it's not even almost, it is a sense of empathy for that player of what they're going through. And I think that's something that if we're too married to the books, too married to the science, we tend to forget about what about the player experience? You know, what are they dealing with? So that's a long-winded answer. But No, no, great answer. Great answer. Coming on to the next point that I wanted to discuss, and this was based off a couple of conversations that I had recently when I had JB, Marin, uh, Les Spellman, and Ryan Grubbs on a, on a roundtable discussing sprint profiling. Somehow we got onto queuing. And one of the really interesting thing that Les said on, I think it was a question that came in from one of the attendees, actually. And it was, what cues do you use for the, uh, various different things? And it the conversation almost went, not what cues do we use, but how can we use as little verbal information as possible, not what is the verbal information? And that was a bit of a, I suppose, a light bulb moment for me of a bit of a shift, maybe in this area of conversation. So I wanted to get your opinion on how Les framed that and if you're of a similar mindset when it comes to queuing in terms of setting things up so you don't actually have to say anything at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. I. I... All those names you just mentioned, they're all brilliant. All, all those, all those uh, members of that roundtable discussion, and, and I take a lot from their work. And, um, you know, Les, Les is a guy who, you know, he's a private sector guy, much like I was, uh, you know, a couple years back. And he gets some very high-profile guys in his program. So, again, I think he's learning 
um, based on that player experience like we just talked about. And I think, you know, when, when you enter into that, you start realizing, okay, if I just cue ad nauseum, they don't care about what I'm talking about. You know, like they're, eventually it's gonna just go in one ear and out the other and my voice is gonna turn into white noise and everything I'm saying is gonna be meaningless no matter how good it is, because I just talk too much. Um, and I think it's important to guide and not dictate athletes as you're developing them. So I think if you are over cueing, it turns into a dictation, a micromanagement process. And I think that's really dangerous. You know, there's, there's plenty of research that's starting to come out now that's, that's related to, sure, if I over cue an athlete, I can get the results I want right now. But if I instead base it around more of what Les is talking about, where can I build the experience through less cues and allow them to explore those things a little bit more? It might take a little bit more time for them to get it, but once they do now, they own it because they figured it out. Or I just kind of nudge them towards it, you know? And then eventually, it's kind of like when you're learning to ride a bike and maybe your parent is holding the bike for you a little bit, giving you just a little bit of stability, a little bit of added stability. And then eventually you're, you start yelling at your parent, like, let go of the bike. And they're, they're 300 feet behind you, you know? Like, they're, I let go, like, long time, you're doing it now. Like, you, you know, you figured it out. So, and now it's like, oh, I know how to ride a bike, you know? So I can continue to ride my bike now and I know how to do it. So I had the experience one time, admittedly, of, when I was much younger, I was about 24 years old, 25 years old. I had an athlete that I was preparing for, you know, his NFL pro day. And I was over him, micromanaging the process of trying to help him with his 40 yard dash. And I handheld him through the entire process. And so by the time he went to go do his pro day and the day of competition, essentially, when the scouts were there evaluating him, he did not have me there because I couldn't physically be there. He was flying back to another state to go compete in another state. And he, he didn't do well at all. You know, he was just, and he was basically, I just, without you there, I didn't know what to do. You know, it was like an over-reliance on that can happen as well. And I think that that's dangerous. So I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the creativity comes in how can I get this principle across to the athlete without, uh, having to over cue them. So how can, basically, how can I give them something to get what I want out of it? And they can't really mess it up. You know, that's, that's a huge part of the art within itself as well. So, um, and I think there's a lot of truth too. I think, uh, I think I might've heard Buddy Morris talking about it one time, the strength coach for the Arizona Cardinals, how, you know, there, there's so much attention that they have to pay to learning their sport and learning their game. And from a technical and tactical standpoint. So if I'm just giving them all these extra things to think about and all these extra cues and all these things. I mean, it's, it's going to overload the system. And so, you know, he, he kind of made the point of like, I just try to give them things they can't mess up when it comes to training. And so like one of the things I came up with at some point just out of necessity was basically that med ball knee punch run. Cause I didn't know what else to call it. Cause I said, how can I get them to understand front side mechanics without just saying, drive your legs up or, you know, drive your knees up because that can be dangerous too if they do it too much or it's awkward and it's, it's uh, mistimed and things like that. And instead I just decided, okay, I need to, let me try the, let me try the stick on the back method, right? And have them do it while well, they were still butt kicking and things like, okay, that didn't work. So how can I get them to realize they need to keep their core tight and they can't just lean forward and butt kick out the back how can I get them to stay in a more upright position, drive the knee towards the hip and keep their core in a neutral position to keep their pelvis in a neutral position? And I started thinking, well, when I do a front squat with a barbell, I feel it a lot more in my core because the bar is front loaded. So by default, I'm more upright in a front squat. So I said, well, what if I put a med ball that has a little bit of weight, you know, not a ton of weight, like 10 to 12 pounds perhaps. Um, and I put it right by their belly button. And I just say, okay, now you're going to run and I want you to try to make contact with your thigh towards the ball. And as soon as I started trying to do that, it was like, all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, I see what you're talking about now, you know? So it was one of those things like sort of out of necessity. I was like, how can I get them to just not mess this up and understand like what I'm trying to get them to feel, give them that experience. And then after that, oh, it clicks. You're right. That does feel better. I know exactly what you're talking about now. Okay, cool. So that's that's been a staple exercise, but that's just one example. Um, and I think it's it's coming up with things like that instead of, like I said, just cueing ad nauseum and overloading them or turning it into white noise or however you want to think of it. So the, with the cues that you do choose to use, how do you make as much impact or how do you, would you recommend other coaches make as much impact with them words as possible. Is there specific areas that you would 
choose to queue? Is there specific scenarios? How would people, I suppose, bring what you've just said into into life with their athletes tomorrow? So something I, I, I learned from Altus and Stu McMillan and Dan Paff and the whole crew there, um, I love how they, they talked about motoric words, I think they called them, where your cue is actually could might not even be a word. It might be a sound. You know, it might be like bat or something like that. You know, like so if I want you to pop off the ground, maybe I say that. Maybe you know, if we're so if we're doing like a high speed running type of drill, and maybe it's like running A's, like extensive running A's to get you to understand how to have that front side lift and get off the ground quickly at the same time. So I'm having you I'm starting to build that elastic endurance in, in your ability to do that by doing running A's for let's say 30, 40 meters on repeat, you know, just repeat 40 meter running A's. Um, the cue I might use at that point is pop. You know, I want you to pop off the ground because have you ever seen a slow pop? Is there like, it doesn't exist. Like a pop is always quick, right? So if I say something like um, punch or something like that, I, I think for high speed running, it probably doesn't work as well as it might for acceleration or something like that. Because uh, in acceleration, if you say, I think if you say push, that becomes dangerous too. So like a punch is faster than a push, you know, and a pop is faster than a punch. So you start thinking about like, what does the word convey that I'm using here? Because they still need to know they need to go fast, you know? And so um, I found if I used punch at high speed, they're hitting the ground too hard and not quick enough. If, it's like, if I say pop, they understand, or I might, I might give them a, a, a visual and say, hey, the ground is on fire. You know, you need to get off the ground quickly. Or so, so if I'm attacking like ground contact, I start thinking about things like that. Um, if I'm attacking frontside lift, maybe I say, imagine you're climbing this gradual set of stairs that leads up into the sky or something like that. Because have you ever seen anybody climb a set of stairs where they're just kicking out the back? I mean, they always lead with the knee and then it's frontside and down, just like you want to see when you're, you're running at, at speed. So, um, or if we're talking about a gradual rise as they go into that transition phase from early acceleration into high speed running. It's like a gradual plane taking off into the sky. That's another thing, you know, just start giving them visuals or, um, you know, if you want something to be done very explosively, uh, that's where I start. I might just use sound effects at that point. Like <laughs> if I want to do a med medicine ball throw for distance and so you need more effort in that, right? Instead of just saying like, hey, throw it harder. I could be like, when you go to throw it, just give it a, you know, like something like that. <laughs> so, so I've started realizing, you know, when, and when you do it yourself, I try to do some of these exercises myself. I think it really helps because now I have the experience. Like I've done this so I can convey that to you. Um, and, you know, that's something that I do that I enjoy doing is just moving my body and feeling it how, how it goes. But between that and talking with the player, like what speaks to them and everybody's a little bit different. So um, I think, you know, like Stu and, and Dan will talk about some players or, or athletes are very uh, in tune with their limbs in space. So if you say lift the knee, they can figure that out. Other ones are more in tune with how the force is being applied into the ground. So if you say pop or punch or something like that, that speaks more to them. It's the force application into the ground that I connect with more than my limb in space. So it's very interesting stuff. And cueing is something that I'm always going back and forth on on how to properly do it. But I do think minimal is best and um, really trying to find the one that works. And sometimes you go through your Rolodex <laughs> for months on end or maybe years on end until, oh, that finally clicked for that player or that athlete. So that's that's how I think of it. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Cam. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around maintaining velocity in game. So whether that's working with soccer athletes that are kind of cruising at that 80 or 90% then have to go again, or whether it's American football where you're in that 80-90% range, you're, you're seeing then that, that acceleration happens again, that kick happens again up to 100%. So how do we actually train that? Then we have a little chat around programming and profiling. So a really interesting part two coming up with Cam. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance 
partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. Samson Equipment has been manufacturing elite strength equipment since 1976. Based in New Mexico, Samson provides professional weight room solutions for those looking to lead the way in advancing our strength and conditioning profession. Being a direct manufacturer, the team at Samson brings fully customization capabilities in not only branding, but in custom equipment needed to execute your programming. The Samson team brings many years of experience, not only in coaching, but in manufacturing high quality strength equipment. So there is no vision too great. If you can dream it, they can build it. Find them on social media at Samson underscore EQ. And for more information, visit their website, samsonequipment.com or email Andy at Andy at samsonequipment.com. And now back to the episode with Cam. So you mentioned working with different groups, different position groups, and that's not, well, obviously you you guys work with uh, American football, but that'll translate to rugby with smaller guys and, and bigger guys. So it's definitely translatable is this next bit, hopefully. So how do you manage the variation between the big guys and the and and the skill based players is there any particular principles that you would that you tend to stick to when you're programming for or and, and coaching the big versus the small guys um and if so what 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 are they yeah no absolutely because i think it, especially in american football and rugby is much the same way you know the, the closer you are to that front line or really in american football the closer you are to the ball the more strength and power oriented you become and the less distance you cover. Um, so, you know, with our frontline players, it, just being brutally honest, I could care less what their max velocity is. You know, it's just something that doesn't, it really doesn't matter. And if we have a defensive lineman that's got to sprint 40 yards downfield at full speed to go get a ball carry, we've got bigger issues. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's something that it, it might happen and we still expect him to go hustle and do that, but that's a one-off thing that it should be a one-off thing, you know? So for me, uh, for them, it's, it's all as much, you can't get enough strength and power and horizontal force and, and like their rate of acceleration, their early acceleration. So as soon as they start moving, just the ability to like really go from zero to 60 or however you want to think of it as, as, as quickly as they can to just explode into that guy across from them and then have a lot of, a lot of strength qualities to go with colliding with another player routinely um, who's just really right in front of you, you know? And, um, you know, like they talk about offensive linemen in American football that a lot of times the amount of space in which they move on any given play could be done in like a, a closet in your house or something like that. You know, it's just, but there's a lot of intensity associated with it, high muscle tension, a lot of strength, a lot of, uh, you know, core control and, and just being able to hold your ground and a lot of eccentric strength, a lot of isometric strength. So we just start thinking about those positional demands, you know, whereas especially now with the way we're spreading things out in American football and all that. And so um, these more perimeter players are running significantly more than they ever have in terms of volume. Um, you know, because American football used to be played where everybody crowded the line and just smashed into each other. It was run heavy, you know, and now everything's pass heavy. So we're very spread out. So wide receivers in, in positions like that, defensive backs are running a lot more. Interestingly, it's uh, the one position that fascinates me now is the linebacker position on defense where they're more of in the middle of the field. And you used to see guys there that were, you know, really big, 250 pounds, 260 pounds, and just, you know, they find the ball and they smash the running back or something like that. But now they're playing in more space, so we're seeing the position almost shrink in terms of weight because their running demands have – increase so much with the way that the schemes are, are being played now and, and being able to defend a lot of these players that are running around in space uh, on offense. So, um, you know, just understanding that they will have to operate in high speed running environments. So they need to know how to do that effectively. And even if they're not, 
in a true high-speed environment, they need to learn how to run when they're in a more low position, if they're closer to the line, and then transitioning into more of an upright position. And I think that's that's the other thing about, you know, the article that I wrote for, for your site is that it's not always that I need to be upright at full, full speed, but can I operate upright at more of a moderate speed? Do I just know how to run upright, you know? And can and can I accelerate when I'm upright? Everybody thinks I need to be low and accelerate out, right? Well, yeah, that's perfect and a true isolated acceleration situation. But if I'm moving around, I'm already upright. And then I realize the ball is over here and I need to go get there and I'm already upright. Can I accelerate in an upright position as well? Like that's a skill within itself that I think is, is unique to team sports and something that um, is perhaps not always developed. It's like players can need to learn to understand that like when I'm completely upright, I, I can accelerate if I'm moving at different speeds and, and how do I do that effectively? So, um, yeah, all those different positional characteristics definitely play a part into how much of an emphasis is the weight room and the strength work and all of that versus the field work and some of the sprint training or, or just more of our open space type of situations, um, you know, and then getting that to match what, what we see from our GPS data and what we know um, from watching game film and what's expected of our players from a technical and tactical standpoint. So it all has to be tied in. I'd like to dive a little bit deeper onto that last point about accelerating when in an upright position because you read anything online, obviously acceleration, the traditional, um, as you've mentioned, uh, low building into that that upright upright running. But when you're actually upright running, like in soccer, for example, I don't know the percentages, but I would guess that very few, um, very few sprints are started from a, a stationary position. It's all from jogging at 70%, 80%. So we've got to develop that quality to be able to re-accelerate in that upright position. How do coaches go about that? Well, I think it's one of my favorite drills for just working the technique of running at various speeds is just doing build-up runs, you know, and um, another variation of that, instead of just kind of like dropping in and building up speed, because I think you can, you can drop in and, you know, have a little bit of a lower angle and then get into a more of an upright position if you do, you know, like kind of like a drop-in build-up sprint um, where I'm gradually picking up speed every 10 meters for whatever, 30 to 50 meters, um, maybe further if you want to. One of the variations I really like with teaching more of upright mechanics is I call it a, I call it a high knee build-up. So basically like they start doing like a running A in place or a high knee run in place for like the first five meters or five yards, however you want to think of it. And from there, then I tell them like, now you need to just start running, <laughs> just pick up some speed, you know? So they're already upright in, in a front side lift position. And so from there, can you learn how to just continue to build up speed from there? And I don't want to see you change your body lean. You know, I don't want to see you go from upright to leaning into the acceleration part. I want to see you stay in that upright position. Your hips stay the same and now start picking up speed from there. And I think, you know, if you, think of how there's like the ratio force elements and things like that, that, um, you know, you're going to have less opportunity to continue accelerating when you're already upright, but there still is a window of opportunity to accelerate that I think is probably longer than a lot of people think. Um, you know, you could probably go continue to accelerate for maybe 20 meters in that position or even further if you're, you're continuing to be efficient with still having some horizontal force application in the upright position. Um, but I think that, that's a good drill. Another one that I really like or you know, sprint float sprint type of drills or speed change drills where maybe I dropped in and I accelerate for 20 and then I hold it for 20 and then I have to continue to accelerate again for another 20 segment after that. Well, when you do that second acceleration, I don't want you to drop your hips or lean forward. I want you to stay right where you are and accelerate again for 20, you know? So that's, I love the, the sprint float sprint drills. I really like, cause I think that that's, that's a sprint, experience that a lot of people in team sports can understand. I run over here. I think I see where the ball's going. I'm reading, I'm reading. Then I run again faster because now I see where it's really going, you know, or something like that, where I'm just like, it's linear, obviously, in that situation. But just that experience of like, I sprint, I kind of float, and then I sprint again. I think that's that's a great one for, for team sport athletes, in my opinion. So just things like that and just, um, you know, yeah, again, ideally, if you can accelerate from a lower position, you can have better acceleration patterns as in terms of an isolated skill of acceleration. But I mean, you just, you don't always have that opportunity in team sports. So I need to have more skills in my movement toolbox. So that's the way I see it. And if you keep an eye on the ball and things change, you obviously got to keep in that upright position. 
like you say, slow down, flow, go again because someone's spotted you, seen you, um, giving you a signal, whatever it might be. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Love it. Just dive into the profiling side that I, that I spoke with Liza JB and, and uh, Ryan on earlier in the week, and I'd love to get your take on. JB dived into velocity-based, uh, sorry, uh, force velocity profiling, low velocity profiling, and how these actually inform their practice or how they can potentially inform practice. Is that is profiling something that you do with your athletes to understand where you need to be spending your time? And if so, how do you utilize those profiling methods? And is there anything else that you may use? And how, how's it integrated into your into your session? Again, like you say, you could have 50, 60, 100 athletes at a time. How does that integrate within the program? Yeah, no, this is a really good question because I think it might be lost on some people what the difference between force velocity profiling is and load velocity profiling. Both are useful in very different ways, you know. So the load velocity profile, I'll start there, I guess, because it's a more simplistic idea. That's basically, I can do that with a primary strength lift. I can do it with a vertical jump. I can do it with a sprint. That's basically just seeing, you know, as I, as I sprint against gradually increasing loads, you know, what's my drop off or how does my velocity drop off against higher loads? So it's very useful for if I want to sprint against my load of maximum power, you know, I, I find what's the, what's the load associated with that by doing a load velocity profile, you know, um, where does that fit into where approximately 50% of my max velocity is occurring at this load? Okay. That's my, that's my load of max power. So I think it's very useful for that. If that's something that you want to include in your training, the force velocity profile for me in terms of JB's research is much more informative, gives you a much bigger picture of what's really going on because you see their theoretical maximal horizontal force capability, their theoretical max velocity capability, their maximum power, all of those metrics, but you also get the mechanical uh, metrics that I think are, are very interesting as well, such as ratio of force. So maximum ratio of force, basically how, how horizontal am I in, in, in my sprint start? You know, if it, it could be a number like 53%, 55%. So if it's, you know, below 50%, then I'm <laughs> the majority of my ratio of force is vertical. We want it to be horizontal, right? So that's something that's important, I think, to measure by doing that. And then the decrease in that ratio of force. So as I pick up speed, how fast does that fall off um, to where I'm getting, how fast am I getting upright? You know, because I think a lot of listeners probably know, but, um, you know, as I'm increasing speed, if I can minimize that drop off i can continue to accelerate longer and continue to pick up speed if it drops off very quickly i reach my top speed sooner and now i can't accelerate because by definition i'm at my top speed and i have nowhere to go but maintaining that or dropping off at that point so those are important to me because um i need to look at what those metrics mean in conjunction with the player positions again and and the individual players within those positions so we do more force velocity profiling here than we do load velocity profiling because we're not always necessarily trying to go against load of max power or or um, you know we're not we're, we're also not always doing resistance sprinting in our training so um, you know for me the force velocity profiling is a way for me to understand the way in which that athlete can put their sprint together you know it gives me more information from that standpoint so you know two athletes run the same 20 meter time but one has a much higher horizontal force capability than the other one. So his, to me, the, the higher your horizontal force or the F zero or F theta, however you want to think of it, that metric there, that's, that's the rate of acceleration. So how quickly he starts picking up speed from the sprint start. And so if you have a shorter distance, like 20 meters, those who have a higher F zero are always going to be the best performers in those shorter distances. Whereas, you know, you have a player who's got a high V0, which is the maximum theoretical velocity capability of that athlete. They will perform better in like 30 meters, 40 meters, because they don't have as high of a rate of acceleration. They don't accelerate quite as quickly, but they can keep accelerating and get to a higher top speed. And so by default, typically those who have a higher F0 also have higher ratio of force. They start off more horizontal and then they, you know, they have a, a, a better rate of acceleration as they go. They're really good over short distances. And, um, those who are, have higher velocity capabilities typically have really good decrease in the ratio of force capabilities where they don't drop off. They just continue to build as they go. And so for me, 
it's not just, I, I've sort of gone back and forth with this because in our setting here, we're working with collegiate athletes. So they're still in a developmental period of their careers. They're not professional yet, you know? So to me, it's like, if we immediately go too individualized with the approach based on the profiles that we're seeing, you know, could we have done something a little bit more generic for the first couple of years and still, and just monitored how the profiles shift sort of naturally as, cause maybe they've never done sprint training before. And so they get to college or, you know, so really for more, our, more of our advanced athletes, I think it's more important to start individualizing the loads they're sprinting against and things like that. Cause we, we've done it both ways. We've done it where we've gone, we, everybody's individualized. And then we've also done it where, you know, everybody's more generic. And I, it sounds great to be able to do a presentation <laughs> at a seminar and say, everybody's individualized. But like in, in reality, it's like, do we always need to do that with sprinting or can we still, you know, is, is there more juice that we can squeeze initially from, from the fruit of just, let's be more generic, get them used to sprinting, get them in better positions, have more of a technical focus, and then just see how these profiles naturally develop over time. And then once they seem like they're not shifting anymore, okay, now, we need to like really look at it like they've been sort of static in their profile. So how can we look at this now and individualize it to really get that extra little, like J.B. Marin calls it that toothpaste tube theory, right? Like you're, you get the last little bit of toothpaste in that toothpaste tube to, to help them get a little bit more out of their performance. So I, I'm more in line with that at this point in my career, where I think with these younger athletes that are 18, 19, 20 years old, maybe we just get them used to sprinting and sprint against heavy loads, sprint against moderate loads, light loads, unloaded high speed running, just get exposed to everything and see how you start to develop. But we're still taking profiles so we can monitor them. Another interesting thing about the force of velocity profiling for me is say we have two players that are playing the same position. So wide receiver is very simple to use as an example in American football, because we know they got to run down the field and catch the ball, you know, and, uh, you know, pick up yardage and get closer to scoring and things like that. So if I have two wide receivers, they play the same position, right? But when I profile them, one has a very high F zero, and an okay, you know, velocity or whatever. So he's got very high horizontal force capabilities, great rate of acceleration. Whereas the other guy is more, not as great of horizontal force, but he's got a very high maximum speed capability. Well, you know, a lot of coaches believe in working to a player's strength. So like if I take the velocity guy and I just say, I'm gonna only do horizontal force work with you now and neglect your velocity, well, I'm taking away from what he's good at. And vice versa, if I take the other receiver, say you just need to get your velocity very, very high and I've ruined your rate of acceleration. And I think within that, we also can't just consider the position, but what they're being asked to do from a tactical standpoint, technical standpoint as well. So that's information now. I can go to the wide receiver's coach and I can say, listen, this guy has really good rate of acceleration. So he can just pick up speed very quickly in, in shorter distances. So maybe you want to send him on shorter routes and have him go more across the middle, get him the ball and he can quickly pick up first downs or things like get you closer that way. Whereas this other guy is not as good as doing that. So maybe you want to design his routes to be more, I'm going down the field deep. And when we want to take a shot, we're targeting that guy, you know, or I take the velocity guy and I put him into a kick return type of position because I'm in more open space and we need to have a lot of speed to advance the ball, you know, where, um, it's just you start thinking of it from that standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, where we've we've had it here. We've had those discussions with coaches where, hey, we want to put this guy in this position. Well, based on what he does from profiling him, he's not really suited for that in terms of like his speed capability and what he does from a raw speed standpoint. He might actually excel better if you actually put him at a, maybe a totally different position or you give him different roles and responsibilities based on what he just naturally does well. So I think that that's, that's something that can help a player's career even when you start thinking about it from that standpoint. So there's a lot you can do with force velocity profiling and I think it's really interesting. We spoke the night about uh, 1080, we spoke about GPS, uh, using my sprint, various different methods we can use to, to force velocity profile our athletes. What methods do you guys use over there? We have a 1080 sprint. So I do it all through the 1080 sprint anytime we need to profile guys. Um, so we sprint test them and then I extract the raw velocity data. I plug it into JB's Excel spreadsheets and we go about it that way. You know, we have the machine, we might as well do it that way. But I think that, you know, like you said, there's, there's a bunch of different ways to do it now. Um, I like like JB, I know he puts this disclaimer out there all the time, and I agree with him. Where if you're using something like my sprint or something else to, you know, the, is, there's the acceleration speed profile now with GPS um, that JB is sort of promoting as well. And I think that 
before just trying to do those things, you need to really do the research on how do I properly set this up to get the most valid data I can, you know, because I think that there's normative values in which players fall. And JB has those ranges on, on his website, his blog site. He put those in there. And at first, I was setting it up completely improperly. And I was like, man, my guys are so much better than what he's putting out here. And, you know, like he has the joke of like everybody's players on their on whatever, insert any team sport team. They, oh, we got all of our all of our rugby players are faster than Usain Bolt and, you know, things like that. So, um, but it's because of the way it's being set up. So I think JB does a great job getting the information out there, but I think that it's very important to dig deeper if you're going to implement that stuff to how do I do this in the most valid way possible? And that's something that I'm committed to because I don't care about, I don't care about numbers being high if they're wrong. You know, I want them to be the right numbers and, and I try to reduce biases from my approach because I just want to know what the answer is. Like, just give me the answer. You know what I mean? So I, if, if I have the wrong answer, I need to find the right answer because if I have the wrong answer, I, don't, I still don't know what's going on, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's the way I think of all those different forms of tech. Last question, Cam. Non-sprint-based profiling, which potentially informs your speed program. Anything you guys do down there? You mean uh, like jumping so or things ju- like that? Yeah, so jumps, anything that, any any other profiling that would help invo- inform your speed program that's not actually sprinting? Yeah, so we've done some jump profiling in the past. And I think admittedly, we're still, we're trying to determine how we want to do it in terms of having this large scale population um, and find ways to make it more valid and useful. So we're still, we're still working on how we want to do that. And I think that in my PhD work, when, you know, when JB comes to the facility and helps us with our testing protocols and things like that, that's going to be a good opportunity for us to, to pick his brain on some of these other profiling metrics that, you know, he's, cause he's, he's known as the sprint profile guy, but he's published tons on vertical profiles and jump profiles and whatever else, strength profiles, I'm sure. And, and all these things. So, um, yeah, those are, those are important to us as well. We just, I think we're still looking for the best practice for how we want to do that. Um, because I do think it's specific. I don't think that you can really understand, you know, the horizontal uh, vector or, or the horizontal situation or profile for that athlete without measuring a horizontal profile. You know, it's my, my personal opinion is I know there's, they try to find correlational data to associate things that are done in the vertical plane with the horizontal plane and all of that. And, and, and I, I commend those efforts. I think they're important. I think it's, it's useful for us to know the relationships with those things, but I just, I'm of the mindset that if I want to improve horizontal performance, I need to measure horizontal performance. And the same thing with vertical. If I want to improve vertical performance, I need to measure vertical. So I think that um, we're still finding the best practice, like the gold standard for us on how we want to do that. But we've done a ton of different measurements. <laughs> like we've done, you know, measuring the velocity of takeoff. We've done, um, we have a force dex force plate here. We've looked at that. Um, you know, we've done jump mat measurement so we're measuring things but we're just deciding what's going to be our gold standard for how we want to do it and um you know what what are we really seeing from it and i think that that's that's the other thing too it's like it's cool to say oh we measure x y and z but like what are we really seeing from it is it useful at all and if it's not then is it even worth measuring you know so these are the questions that we have awesome right cam i'm gonna let you go but anyone that wants to know more about you your work potential PhD studies that are, that are coming out, what's the best place? I think, I think my Twitter is probably the best. Um, you know, my Twitter is at IU coach Joss. So IU for Indiana university and um, anything in relation to my thoughts on training or the PhD work that will be coming out. It'll, I'll be posting all from there. So any information associated with, with me and what I'm willing to put out there will be posted on, on that Twitter for sure. So that's the only social media I've got though. Unfortunately. Good. No, no. Fortunately. Fortunately. Yeah. yeah, Big time. So when, when does the PhD, when do potential PhD publications start coming through? Do you expect? Uh, in terms of publications could be a while, but we, um, yeah, I know we're, I'm, I'm enrolled now. So we're, we're starting the process. We're, we're getting some of our preliminary data done this year in 2022. So it's, um, we're going to see what, what we want to publish, what we can publish with what we're collecting. And we have a, you know, general, idea of where we want to take everything and it's going to be heavily involved with being able to sprint profile american football players at the collegiate level and how do those things inter 
interrelate with uh, you know hamstring injuries that occur and are there ways to possibly mitigate those and uh, use the profiles in conjunction with that mitigation and so um, that's basically the bulk of what our focus is and then from there we're going to see you know what can we publish as we go you know and based on the data that we get so it's going to be a fun project couldn't be more fortunate to work with JB and Ken Clark's another co-supervisor and um, you know Aaron Wellman is my boss is another supervisor. He's a PhD as well. So it's just, it's a, it's a great team. Very excited for it. Dream team. Absolutely. Dream, dream team. <laughs> right, mate, I'll let you go, but thank you very much for coming on again. Really appreciate all your insights and how open you are with what you guys are doing down there. So I really appreciate it. Keep in touch and uh, speak soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers, Cam. Thanks for tuning in to episode 393 of the Pasty Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Cam, as usual, for giving up his time. He's a busy man, plenty going on, so I really do appreciate him coming on to share his knowledge and wisdom. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, iMajorU, Kitman Labs, Samson Equipment, and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate their support. We've got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, so make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And every Thursday morning, UK time, you will get a world-class strength and conditioning coach, sports scientist, sports performance professional on your phone, tablet, computer to enjoy. So thanks a lot for your support, and look forward to speaking to you next week.